0: Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork.
1: And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person.
0: Wine Access is the exclusive sponsor of Wine for Normal People. Go to WineAccess.com slash WFNP and get an exclusive offer, 10% off your first order. Wine Access, have wines that you can't get anywhere else at the best prices around. Listen in the middle of the show for more details. Because I am about to go to Italy. Yes. This show is absolutely not about Italy. Oh. (laughs) That's fake news. It is fake news. Uh We have another fantastic tour of Piedmont planned. I'm really excited for this, and I so appreciate our first trip takers, and the second trip takers are going to have a totally different experience. My goal is to always mix things up when we go on these trips and do things a little differently each time just like I do with the classes and everything else right. just cuz i You're mean i don't want to be
1: it. you don't want people to have the same experience over and over
0: well not just that i don't want to keep doing the same thing exactly. over and over maybe it's very selfish of me but no i am really excited to go to Piedmont and the last time that we went as a group it was in may and now it is harvest time and because harvest is so late for nebbiolo We should be able to see some harvest action. Yeah. It should be really nice. It's also truffle season for those who like that.
1: Bring your pigs.
0: No, it's dogs now. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know There was a really funny, you know, I love Conan O'Brien Needs a friend. Yes. And there was a hilarious episode where they were talking about how he and I guess his producer went truffle hunting and they had a dog and like the whole thing turned into a horrible disaster of course because it's conan
1: i think i know who the that producer was it's yeah, very he's kind of like funny
0: a, yeah he's very like very
1: dry very dry yes. but very
0: like negative yes and conan's always asking him like what do you do actually do well, he, why do he i have you he's
1: italian he went with conan to italy
0: mm-hmm. on one yes in that's, in one what, this is. Oh, that's was. what i'm oh, talking okay. about yes. yes 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 anyway that's not what we're talking about this week We're not going to do patron shout outs this week. The list is shortened until we catch up with the new three-month rule. But I will catch you all when we do the next show. I do want to get to the podcast straight away, which is on a really interesting topic. I am about to launch a class on the wines of Australia, which will happen some point this coming week of this podcast. Okay one of the things that we will be covering and tasting is the wines of Tasmania. I'll tell you this. Probably when I first started in wine, I never would have even imagined that Tasmania was even a factor. It was maybe one line in a wine book somewhere. It was, this is a place that has a lot of potential.
1: Isn't it on the south end of the island? It is really the far south. island. Yes. Continent, yes.
0: So it is its own island. Right. And it is one of Australia's top cool climate wine growing regions is between 40 and 44 degrees, the roaring 40s, which we talked about when we talked about New Zealand. Right. It's this small, isolated state. It's 150 miles off of the Australian mainland. It has become a huge tourist destination. Actually, Hobart is a huge tourist town these days for the wine and the food and for all the culture. And it's on the southeastern tip of Australia. It's the southernmost wine region of Australia. It's cool. It's diverse. It's got unique terroir. And because it is cool, it specializes in Chardonnay, in Pinot Noir, in aromatic whites, and in sparkling wines really made out of that Chardonnay and Hmm. Pinot Noir. Everything is in very limited supply. I read somewhere that only a quarter of what they make is actually exported anywhere. Oh, really? We're talking about tiny, tiny amounts of wines. So it's actually only about 2,000, a little over 2,000 hectares or 5,000 acres and there's 180 producers, give or take, maybe what? 200 producers of, of everything in Tasmania. Oh, my gosh. Think of it like a state. So right. like New York State or wherever. It's 1% of Australia's total harvest volume, 4% of their sales by volume of all of Australia. And it is one region. So if you buy a bottle of Tasmanian wine, if you're lucky enough to find it, Mm -hmm. what you will see is just the Tasmania geographical indication.
1: How is it branded? Tasmania, wine of
0: Tasmania. But there are seven subregions which we will be discussing. And let's talk quickly about the history and we'll get into the lay of the land because that's really where some of these subregions come in. They are not formal subregions. They are just regions that are emerging. Eventually, Tasmania would like to make these regions. Oh, okay. Right now, they are what they are. And there's one for the entire state of Tasmania. It would be like a wine from South Australia or a wine from Western Australia. This is a big geographical indication. However, if you know what you're looking for, you can find producers in each of these areas. Huh.
1: I'm shocked that they can grow anything with the volatile weather they have there.
0: It actually is really volatile. Really? Yes. Why are you saying? Are you well, being sarcastic? Well, because of
1: the little tornadoes everywhere. I mean,
0: Oh, the Tasmanian devils? Yes, oh, yeah. Very funny. Mm-hmm. You know what? Actually, it really, it's kind of accurate. Really? Yes.
1: All right. Well, I'm anxious to hear more then.
0: On the history, there was a history of aboriginals here that made fermented beverages, actually, not of vitis vinifera, because that is from Europe. But it was in 1642 that we see the Dutchman Abel Tasman. Mm -hmm. discovering, we'll put that Ah. in quotation marks, discovering Tasmania. It was known actually as the colony of Van Diemen's Land until 1856, who was another colonist here. And in 1788, the first vines arrived with a guy named William Bly, who planted these vines on an island called Bruni Island, and it did not work. These vineyards died within four years. In 1823, we had somebody who had real stick-to-itiveness and who had determination, and that was former convict Bartholomew Broughton, who planted the first significant vineyards in Tasmania. By 1834, there was William Henty. He sailed down from Launceston in the north of the island, and he took grapevine cuttings and plants to Victoria. Now, this is a really interesting twist in the history of Tasmania. So in 1823, you have vineyards being set up. And in 1834, you have a guy going to the Australian mainland and mm-hmm. saying, we're going to take cuttings from here and we're going to bring them to Victoria and to South Australia. Tasmania predates Victoria and South Australia That's in odd. vineyards. Victoria thrived and so did South Australia because the gold rush there. Yep. Tasmania's wine industry died. Yet, on the back of the Tasmanian wine industry, much of that flourished. So really, really interesting. Now, Victoria and South Australia are hugely productive and are known for high-quality wine. South right. Australia has Barossa and McLaren Vale and Cunawara and Clare Valley and Eden Valley. All of these very famous regions. And in Victoria, you have the Yarra Valley. You have Mornington Peninsula. I mean, all of these really famous areas.
1: Why did it die?
0: Well, there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, people left and they went to Victoria for the gold rush. And there just wasn't the population that at that point to sustain the viticulture. And it's very difficult to do. It is very, very hard to grow grapes here. In 1856, they changed the name to Tasmania. And in 1865, more than 45 grape varieties were grown here. But after people left... In the 1860s, there just wasn't an industry here. There Mm -hmm. was pockets here and there. Most people thought it was too cold. It took about 100 years for the industry to to come back. No, not even. No, no. 1958 to 1959, there was finally a resurgence. This resurgence was only like backyard winemakers in Hmm. Tasmania. This was not people who were doing state-of-the-art modern stuff. It was with a French immigrant named Jean Miguel. He set up La Provence Vineyard, it's now called Providence, planted Chardonnay, Chasselas, and Grenache in the northern part of the island. Mm -hmm. And then two years later, there was an Italian immigrant, Claudio Alcorso, and he set up an estate called Morilla Estate, which is the aboriginal name of the land that he set it up on. And both of them, having been from Europe, thought, this isn't too cool for viticulture. This is great. Hmm. As opposed to other people who thought it's way too right. cool because they were on the Australian mainland where it was much, much warmer.
1: Who won? The French or the Italians?
0: They both won. Those they did. estates are still around today. They are.
1: Oh, very cool.
0: So that was in the late fifties and in the nineteen sixties, you had more people coming in and exploring Tasmania. Mm-hmm. In the 1970s, Piper's Brook Vineyard was founded. That's still around today. Jantz, which was founded with Rotorair or Rotorair from France. Jantz is the only sparkling only wine estate on Tasmania. It has a great pedigree. Ulumba owns it today. Ulumba is based in, I believe it's in South Australia. Oh, 1990s, more people moved onto the scene. And today we see it thriving. Now, again, there's a limited number of producers, probably around 200, give or take, and it's not that much vineyard area. But what is growing here, and we'll talk about the flavors of these wines and Mm -hmm. what they're making, Pinot Noir is 47% of what they grow. Chardonnay is 25.5%, Sauvignon Blanc about 9%, Pinot Gris 8%, Riesling 5.5%, and then everything else is pretty small. Pinot Mune is 2%, and that goes into the sparkling wines. Syrah, 1%, and then you have Cab and Merlot and then other aromatic whites. And then also Nebbiolo, Tempranillo, Alborino, Viognier, Gruner. Those, all those things are being trialed mm-hmm. right now. Some quite successfully. Sparkling, though, is almost 40% of production, followed by still red, which is 32%, and then white, which is 30%.
1: You said earlier that Tasmania is a difficult area to grow in. I can't believe that Pinot thrives here.
0: Well, Pinot only thrives in cool climates, though. And so it is a very limited set of places that Pinot can thrive. They have to be cooler climates. Pinot needs a warm summer a shorter growing season, Mm -hmm. continental climate. That's what Burgundy has. And if you look at Santa Barbara, there's whipping winds, and it's one of the coolest places in California. Mm -hmm. Sonoma Coast is very cold. Parts of Chile have the Humboldt Current. So anywhere that's growing Pinot is cool, this would fit that profile. So let's talk about the climate, because that might put into focus why this would be a place for cool climate varietals. It's a temperate climate, it's got a marine climate, a maritime climate, because you have the Tasman Sea, you have the Bass Strait, and you have the Indian Ocean. And all of that is going to mean that you have really strong winds and rainstorms that are coming off of the ocean, because this is in the roaring 40s. So 40 to 44 degrees south latitude, there's open ocean, and you have these prevailing westerly winds that are going to batter the western coast, just like in New Zealand. Hmm. You can't do viticulture on the western coast here, just like in New Zealand. You can't do viticulture on that western coast either. The only places that you could really do viticulture, and again, this is consistent with New Zealand, is places where you can get shelter from those winds. Those high winds and the topography
1: to help with that.
0: Yes, it's the most mountainous state actually in all of Australia. There's mountain ranges that crisscross the center of the island. That's going to protect the vineyards and create some warm pockets. One of the other problems here is frost. You've got frost, you have humidity because you're on an island. So that's always going to be an issue. Botrytis, not the good kind. Yep. Wildfires in the summertime because sometimes it can get really dry. It all boils down to this you need to pick the right site and then you need to manage it well. This is not viticulture that's easy. You really have to work on this. And you also almost- have to worry about vintage variation because are the summers even going to be warm enough to ripen the grapes? Well, if not, you can move them into sparkling. And will frosts harm the vines in the winter time? When it works, you're going to get these really elegant Wines, but it is an issue, right? They do have drought issues sometimes in the summertime, Mm -hmm. even with all the rain because of the rain shadows and the mountains and things like that. So they actually have apparently a very extensive network of drip irrigation all over. Some places use it. Some places don't. They don't use it every vintage because some vintages it's wet and rainy, but they Hmm. have the option. You've got Hobart in the east. It is the second driest Australian state capital after Adelaide. You have sheltered climates around Launceston and Hobart, which are Tasmania's main wine centers. What all this is going to result in, though, is low yields. These vineyards are expensive to farm. It's expensive to grow grapes, quality over quantity. And the wines are going to be pretty expensive because you don't know what you're going to get. There isn't a whole lot. The other thing I should mention, global warming has been quite good for Tasmania. Yeah,
1: it's fared pretty well.
0: That's part of the reason why it's come on the wine scene more. Oh,
1: interesting. Because
0: before you had to put a lot of this into... The sparkling program, yep. which is great, and people want it, but at the same time, now you can do Pinot, you can do Chardonnay, you can do bolder, bigger flavors because stuff can ripen. Okay. Now I already mentioned it's pretty mountainous. Vineyards are on the lower slopes of the mountains and in the valleys. Uh,
1: the east, west, north, south. What's They've the orientation got to be fa- of them?
0: want slopes that are facing north to capture most of the sun, we're in the southern hemisphere, mm-hmm. and east because the western sun is going to be too hot in the afternoon the soil types are all over the place. You have sandstone and mudstone, you have river sediment. Then you have igneous rock. You have some volcanic stuff here too. I was going
1: to ask if there's still volcanic activity.
0: No, no active volcanoes. They've got to do things like put nets over the fruit for birds, for, for, and that's fruit partially. Bats. Yeah, well, partially. <laughs> you know what the problem is? There's a lot of orchards also in Tasmania. Okay. So the birds are sort of crazy for everything. It's all ripening at the same time, and they're going for the grapes. If the orchards are close by, they're going for that too. That's one of the hazards here. But in the vineyards, in order to get ripeness, they do something really weird. I don't know if all of the vineyards do this, but apparently it's big enough so that I've read about it in more than one place. They take leaves off of the vines, which is not unusual. Leaf removal is quite prominent in places where it's cold because you want to deleaf so that you can get the maximum amount of sun. But they only deleaf on the east side so they can get east sun and then they keep shade shade on the west. west.
1: Interesting. That's It's really, really smart.
0: In the evening, they have shade protection so that the grapes can have a longer ripening season. We're going to thank our sponsors. And the first one we're going to thank is you, the patrons on Patreon. Thanks to everybody so much for helping keep us going. Without Patreon, we can't do it. And for a bottle of wine a year, $21.60 a year, you can join this awesome community and come to things like we just had a wine access hangout with Serge deray You get access to all sorts of special events. If you get any value out of this show, it would be really Really, really great if you could help keep us going. Also, don't forget, winefornormalpeople.com slash classes. Another way to participate in the community. I'm about to launch a bunch of new classes through November. Get on it today and make sure that you sign up $30 a person. It's a great deal. You buy the wines locally, buy as many or as few as you want, and you get to hang out live with a great group and a really fun community. Wine access. Wine Access is the exclusive sponsor of this show. You will get 10% off your first order when you go to wineaccess.com slash normal and sign up for my wine club. Wine Access has wines at amazing prices that you can't get locally. I just had a meeting with our team of experts to talk about our next wine club shipment for the Wine for Normal People Wine Access Wine Club. They are so dedicated to finding the types of wines that we love to drink. There are wines for every pack. Ballot, but the common ground here is that they are incredibly high quality and they are things that are hard to get on your own. The team and I sat down and pieced together things that I like, things that you guys like for the wine club, and things that will... affordable. For $150, you can get six bottles through the wine club. So we really have to make sure that we have the best wines that are the best bang for the buck. You will love wine access. They were rated best wine club by Wirecutter. They are a partner of the Michelin guide. Michelin only works with the best, as do I. Go to WineAccess.com slash WFNP. Check out the wines that I am loving right now. Support them as they support us and get some great wines. You won't be sorry and get 10% off with my special URL, WineAccess.com slash WFNP. And now let's get back to the show. As I mentioned, there are seven separate areas, which I will go into now, but we will mention all of them, but the only official geographical indication or appellation for Tasmania is Tasmania. Okay. There's a number of reasons for this. Okay. First of all, the qualifications for having a GI is that each region has to have at least five independently owned vineyards. Okay. They have to be at least five hectares or 12 and a half acres each. And they have to make more than 500 tons of grapes. There's only two districts that have that, that could qualify for that, the Coal River Valley and Piper's River. Huh. There are areas that make more wine, but they don't have the other qualifications. Like they might not have five independently owned
1: oh, Interesting, because
0: there's been a lot of consolidation. Yeah. Okay. These districts, as I mentioned, are on the northeast and southern parts of the island nothing on the West Coast. Most of them are near the cities of Launceston in the north and Hobart in the south. Most of the areas of Tasmania are really well suited for whites and for Pinot. But you've got a couple of areas that are warmer that can work for red wines, and Mm -hmm. we'll talk about those. So in the north, you have the Tamar Valley and Piper's River. It's wetter It's a little bit more humid. The Tamar Valley is most of the production. It's 40% of production. It's at 42 degrees south. It is the biggest district. It is the oldest district. It's on both sides of the Tamar River, which is named for a river in England. Uh So I'm probably not saying it right. It's probably Tamar.
1: It's pronounced Thames. (laughs)
0: So this flows from Launceston to the Bass Strait. It is one of the driest and the warmest climate. So cool winds are going to come down and help keep it fresh. But at the same time, it is pretty warm. You have grapes growing on the northern slopes, on the southern banks of the river. There's less frost risk. Iron-rich soils here. The vines are going to dig pretty deep. Mm -hmm. Lots of flavor in the wines of Tamar Valley. Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. Sauvignon Blanc, lots of sparkling wine here, plus Pinot Gris, Gewurztraminer, and Cabernet Franc. But this has
1: got to be one of the most diverse regions, right?
0: It's 40% of production. Sure. So again, you're going to try to make your benchmark wines here. And also, again, because it's pretty dry and warm, you have consistent ripening, which is probably, again, why it's pretty big okay. in terms of production. Then you have Piper's River. Here also, northeast of Launceston, lots of forests and hilly. This is 20% of production. They also have volcanic soils here or igneous rock. The vines also here dig deep. They're going to search for water. You do not need irrigation much here, just like in the Tamar Valley. So lots of dry farmed grapes, which is really great for flavor mm-hmm. if you don't have to irrigate. This is an excellent area for Sparkling, Dr. Andrew Peary established the area in 1974 with Piper's Brook Vineyard. Sparkling, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Riesling. There are two sparkling houses here. One is called House of Arras, and the other is Jantz. Jantz is the only Tasmanian winery only to focus on sparkling wine. It is the one that you will find in the U.S. most frequently. That's absolutely what I can tell you. What's the style like? It is really crisp. We'll talk about the styles in a second because the regions are pretty similar. Some of them are warmer, Mm -hmm. but the style is pretty consistent. Then you have an area called East Coast, again, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. There's a famous winery here called, and I know I'm not going to say this right, but it's Freycinet, and it opened in 1980. It's good Pinot Noir and sparkling wine. 20% of the wine uh, approximately is from East Coast. It's near a national park and near a very photographed site called Wine glass bay.
1: Wine why do they call it wine glass bay? I don't
0: know, but it's supposed to be one of the most beautiful places in all of Australia and oh, wow. it does look freaking gorgeous. So that's a bucket list item. Then there's Northwest. That's the state's youngest wine region, Pinot, Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, Riesling. And then outside of Hobart, the Coal River Valley, just east of Hobart, it's following the Coal River. Duh. Mm. The vineyards are on northeast-facing slopes. Again, I've said that's the best areas. Those are the sunniest areas for Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling. It's drier and warmer in the Coal River than it is in parts of southern Victoria. This is the weird thing about Tasmania. There are some parts that are what you would expect. They're cold. They're humid. They are getting really good breezes. It's very, very cool here. And then you have a place like the Coal River Valley where, yes, you're growing Pinot and Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc and Riesling. But more
1: like the mainland.
0: But then there's some pockets here where it's so warm that you're growing red wine mm-hmm. grapes. Really rich and full Pinot out of Coal River. And there's some sandy soils here, which are really nice for the aromatic wines like Pinot Gris, Riesling, Gewurztraminer. Hmm. The Derwent Valley, which is in southern Tasmania, also close to Hobart, is on the Derwent River. This is where Marilla Estate is, that Italian producer who who came in 1958. This is one of Tasmania's first commercial vineyards. There's a museum there, the Museum of Old and New Art, and it is one of the biggest tourist destinations It is credited with bringing huge amounts of tourists to Hobart and to Tasmania because it's so funky and weird and like a crazy. We have to add it to the list, right? That
1: sounds amazing.
0: But the Derwent Valley is cool climate. The mountains are going to shield the area, so you have a nice long growing season with cool nights. Mm -hmm. North facing hills, the hillsides, hillsides are really really important to these grapes because they're being shielded and protected, and they're getting enough sun. And rivers also. Rivers are going to warm up the temperature. We see the same thing in the Loire. It's very consistent with places that are cooler that grow grapes. Alluvial soils in the Derwent Valley. Not that many producers because mergers and acquisitions have consolidated them. Are they
1: international producers or or are they Australian?
0: Most are Australian, but you have some outside ownership as well. One of the bigger threats to the creativity and the dynamism of this area is this problem with these large out of state wine companies coming up and buying up hundreds of acres of Tasmanian land. They are not stupid. They realize that there are problems that they're not going to be able to overcome in mm-hmm. some of the warmer areas of Australia. They know this and they know that Tasmania does not have those problems and it's going to take a lot longer for Tasmania to experience those problems if it ever does. So they're buying up all of this acreage and they're buying small properties as well. And it can be really great for training and it can be really great for reputation and it can be great for development. But another problem is that it could also drag down the prices of some of these wines and the small winemaker, family winemaker is being pressed a little bit. Because if you have companies like Yolumba, and then we haven't gotten to it yet, but Moet and Chandon also buy grapes and ship them back to their facility in Victoria. Hmm. You have these larger concerns from mainland Australia coming and seeing, okay, well, the land is not that expensive. We can afford it. We're going to buy it up before anybody else does. And then... There isn't stuff available for other people. Yeah, so that's going to be a real problem. That makes the land more productive.
1: That means that more of the world's going to have an opportunity to try the product.
0: It is. And they recognize that. But they also are concerned about what's going to happen. Sure. Really.
1: Double edged sword.
0: The Huan Valley is the final one. This is the southernmost area in Australia for making wine. They get winds from the Antarctic. There is a rain shadow here, but this is cool, cool climate. Great acidity. It's alluvial, limestone soils, north facing slopes. Mostly apple orchards are here, but what you do have is some small pockets of this very acid driven Chardonnay. Same thing with Pinot. Everything that I've read about that valley is that that's where people really, yes, that's what, what people are most interested in. It's
1: obviously, for the long term, it's it's probably going to fare the, the best.
0: Exactly. Yeah. We'll talk about the producers in a second. I want to talk about some of the flavors of these grapes, and I think it's what you would expect. The grapes are going to ripen slowly. There's going to be great natural acidity. There will be good flavor and balance. These are not over-extracted wines, not really big wines. Mm -hmm. They have really great acidity. Chardonnay, the style is going to vary, but usually it's lean. It's very acidic. It can be medium-bodied, but you're not going to get tropical notes. You're going to get things like pear and citrus and apple. Mm -hmm. And they try very hard to make wines where oak is not the main focus. Good. Honestly, they don't have enough fruit to support a lot of oak. They are trying to find a balance. Some of the better Chardonnay producers, Piper's Brook, Devil's Corner, Bay of Fires. These are things that I've read. Again, we can't get most of this wine here, and it is quite expensive in the U.S. But if you are looking for these wines, there's also a vineyard called Toll Puddle, which is... Well-esteemed, it's owned by Shaw & Smith, which is a winery in Adelaide Hills in South Australia. Again, oh. another one of these things coming from... But it's a small vineyard. The Chardonnay is lean. The Pinot Noir is elegant. Red berries, strawberry cherry, aromatic. Tamar Valley and Piper's River are mm-hmm. going to do very well with Pinot. The Cole River Valley and the Derwent Valley are emerging as Pinot producers. Murilla Estates, Pooley Wines, Freycinet... Sparkling Tasmanian bubbles are considered the best in Australia because of the cool climate, sure. because of the expertise. Most of it is traditional method, but I will tell you not all of it is traditional method. There is going to be some that are in the Charmat method, which will be fine. That's the tank fermentation method. But there could also be some that are carbonated. Okay. But the better ones are all using the traditional champagne method.
1: Does it indicate the the method on the label? No. So you got to look that up to on know. the tasting notes. Oh, you can look geez. that up.
0: You can often tell by the price also. Okay. Some are dry and fruity with apple and citrus. Some are very bready. Some are aged with extensive lees contact. Jans, I've already mentioned, mm-hmm. Yolumba. House of Arras, as I said before, they are known for long lees aging. Clover Hill, Freycinet, Piper's Brook, Biodynamic Producers, Stefano, Lubiana, Moet and Chandon. They're using their Tasmanian grapes for Australian sparkling. So that's sparkling. And then we have some of the aromatic grapes, Pinot Gris, the goal generally is the Alsace style, fuller right. bodied with yep. really good acidity, spiciness, which again is something very, very common in Alsace, more than the lighter style Pinot I'm Grigio. Say, so,
1: this is, this is more flavorful than what we'd find in Italy, right?
0: Parts of Trentino and Alto Adige make exceptional Pinot Grigio. So, we can't always say that. But yes, it's not mass produced. Obviously, nothing here is mass produced. It's all very small. It's too small. Sauvignon Blanc high acidity, and it's very citrusy. So whereas New Zealand has those jalapeno pepper notes Mm -hmm. and the big tropical notes, this is going to be citrusy and light, probably more reminiscent of cool climate Sauvignon Blanc from France than something from New Zealand. But there are producers that use oak. So caveat emptor if you're going to buy a Sauvignon Blanc from Tasmania. And some of it is quite prodigious oak from what I could tell. Riesling, increasing in production. Sparkling, sweet, dry, all styles made, high acidity, great minerality. Pouli wines is a big proponent of the Riesling, but we're seeing more growth in Riesling. And then Shiraz. Cool climate Syrah, or Shiraz, is a thing. If they can find the right spots for it, it can do quite well. Well, I've already mentioned Cabernet and Merlot also can grow here, but you've got to find the right sites. I mentioned that some of these places have warmer climates. So you have to pick and choose where you're going to grow red grapes, especially that you're not using for sparkling.
1: Given your love of Shiraz, what would your expectations be of Shiraz from Tasmania?
0: If they can ripen it, it can be quite good. This is going to be a cool climate style with lavender notes, probably bacon fat, olive notes. Those Mm -hmm. are all things that you'll find in cooler climates. Now, the key is to make sure that the acidity is not so high that, and that you have some unbalanced. flavor development. Right, and right. flavor development. And you want the tannins also to be a little more mature so it doesn't strip your mouth. So oh, right. those are, I don't know what those styles are or what they will be, but it could emerge as a really excellent place for hmm. Shiraz in the future. Nice. I just don't know right now. What I will tell you is some fabulous producers. We've mentioned most of them. Another one that I didn't mention was Domain A, Tamar Ridge, Puri is another one. Lots of really great producers here, but it is a limited set and a limited selection. If you live in Australia and you're listening to this, you probably have great access to Tasmanian wines. If you live in the U.S., in Canada, in the U.K., it's going to be more limited because We just don't have the selection. There's not that much wine to go around. The U.K. will have a better selection than the U.S. Mm -hmm. But we have some access, and especially to the sparkling, that's usually what I see, and some of the higher-end pinots are available in the U.S. But – As Tasmania becomes this huge tourist destination, not just for Australians, but for others, it's really quite possible that people go and see these gorgeous cities and they see the natural beauty of Tasmania. It could be that the demand for wine goes up and they're able to supply it. And again, these large producers have a role to play because they can pump out more wine. Mm -hmm. But what we don't want to see is we don't want to see all of the formulaic. Well, we don't want to see all the unique characteristics of this place go away because we have larger producers coming in. It just depends on who those larger producers are, what they decide to do, and whether or not they are respectful of the traditions that have already been established, even if they are shorter traditions than in other places, which is ironic because a lot of those other places that have longer traditions got the grapes from Tasmania, yeah,
1: That is funny.
0: <laughs> it is. So that's Tasmania. It's a short show. It's a short topic, well, but pretty interesting. Thought,
1: I never would have given Tasmania a second glance on the wall of wine, but now I'm going to keep an eye out for it. I mean, this sounds really good.
0: And that's really all we can do is keep an eye out for it. I looked locally for these wines, could not find them. We are lucky enough to be able to access some wines from not around here, so we can get those wines. But it is not easy to find these, and they are going to cost you some cash. I can't say that I'm really schooled in these wines. Mm -hmm. I mean— Do I know a Barassa Shiraz? Do I know a McLaren Vale Shiraz? Do I know a a Cabernet from Margaret River? Absolutely. Do I know Semillon from Hunter Valley? Yes. Stuff from the Yara Valley. All of this is quite familiar because we can get access to all of those wines at a number of price points. But Tasmania is hard. And Australian listeners are infinitely frustrated with me, and but they do understand if they ever come to the U.S. We just don't have access to Australian wines in the way that they do. The smaller producers are frustrated. They cannot do the paperwork. The United States operates like 50 different countries. Smaller producers cannot do that. Simone Madden Gray and I talked about this when she was on last. Like many things in Australia, the thing that is going to reignite Australia In the U.S. and in other places where maybe it's not quite as strong is these smaller wines that are showing really great progress Mm -hmm. and showing something different than what we would expect. So Tasmania is definitely a real feather in the cap. It's a real leader for what Australia can do, something a little bit different. Well, it
1: sounds like you're giving us a glimpse of the future here. So hopefully they become uh, more prevalent in, in our local wine shops.
0: We'll have to see. But I did want to cover it because it is something that's interesting. And I would totally classify it as emerging because this scene has ignited in the last 20 years. So we'll see where it goes but it certainly looks like it's on an upward trajectory so that is tasmania and with that this has been another episode of wine for normal people thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time